Podcastle, episode 138, for January 4th, 2011. That's right, folks, welcome to your new year. This week's story, Balfour and Merriweather and the Adventure of the Emperor's Vengeance, by Daniel Abraham, rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle, I'm Ann Leckie. When I was a kid, I got my hands on a book called Chariots of the Gods that talked about how ancient civilizations had been assisted by technologically advanced aliens from outer space, which explained all the fabulous buildings and monuments they built. After all, how could such primitive people have built, oh, Stonehenge, the pyramids, the Nazca lines, you name it. Just about anything big and impressive that required some sort of mathematical or maybe astronomical knowledge, or really any sort of technology to pull it off. How could they possibly have built those things without math or science? It had to be aliens. It made perfect sense to me at the time. Later I noticed that the Greeks and Romans didn't get too much of that treatment. Maybe because we know they weren't too shabby in the math and science department. There's Pythagoras, of course. Everyone knows about his theorem. And the Greek philosopher Eratosthenes calculated the Earth's diameter with nothing more than observing the position of the sun in two different places. Not too shabby, huh? Or maybe we don't ask how could they possibly have done it about the Greeks and Romans, because they're considered foundational to Western civilization, and so it's harder to write them off as too stupid to build their own culture. But that's a rant for another time. Anyway, it turns out other ancient cultures kind of had the jump on Greece. Babylonian mathematicians understood Pythagoras' theorem well before his soul was transmigrated to Samos. And it's the Babylonians, by the way, who we can blame, along with the Egyptians, for the whole 24 hours in a day thing, instead of something sensibly decimal. And the Egyptians possess some pretty sophisticated mathematical knowledge of their own, as it happens. We've got papyrus math texts with problems involving calculating the volumes of differently shaped granaries and even some basic algebra. And Egyptian medicine was highly respected by the ancient Greeks. Supposedly, Hippocrates studied in Egypt. You know, that guy who's considered the ancestor of Western medicine? In fact, it turns out most ancient societies were more technologically sophisticated than they look at first glance, which means when someone asks how could these people have built this wonderful thing, the answer probably isn't godlike aliens. It's kind of disappointing in a way. What could be cooler than godlike aliens? I mean, seriously. But on the other hand, there's also something cool about the idea that all of our ancestors were pretty darn smart. Today's story is Balfour and Merriweather in the Adventure of the Emperor's Vengeance by Daniel Abraham. He's the author of the Long Price Quartet books. He also writes urban fantasy as MLN Hanover and science fiction with Ty Frank as James S.A. Corey. His short fiction has been nominated for the Nebula, World Fantasy, and Hugo Awards, and he's won the International Horror Guild Award for his novelette Flat Diane. He can be found online at www.danielabraham.com. His new books, The Dragon's Path and Leviathan Wakes, will be out in late spring and early summer from Orbit. Balfour and Merriweather in the Adventure of the Emperor's Vengeance was first published in Postscripts number 19, The Enemy of the Good. It's read by Paul S. Jenkins. You can listen to his podcast novel, The Plitone Revisionist, at www.plitone.com, and you can read his skeptical blog, Notes from an Evil Bernie, at www.evilbernie.co.uk. Balfour and Merriweather in 
The Adventure of the Emperor's Vengeance by Daniel Abraham As I sit at my ease, the lights and sounds of my native London wrapped about me like an old jacket. I cannot but marvel at the changes encompassed by my small span of years. The home of my nativity was lit by gaslight. My coming senescence shall be spent in the created daylight of the electrical filament. As a youth, I rode in a carriage pulled by brute animal force. As an old man, I moved from club to flat in machines of steel and vulcanized rubber. I have seen the Great War amplify our worst instincts into a horror that will, by the mercy of Christ, end our warlike impulses forever. My generation has been privileged to witness the birth of this new age of mankind. Only a handful know the occult roots of this transformation, and that in truth this is not the first age of mechanism, but the second. From the Last Notebook of Mr. Merriweather, 1919 Chapter 1 An Unwelcome Visitor Balfour and Merriweather were at their apartments in King Street that evening in November of 1870. The weak autumn sun had fallen not long before, and a chill fog grayed the front windows so that only the sound of the carriage marked their visitor's arrival. Balfour frowned, his thick brows knitting, and stroked his wide moustache. Merriweather put down his silver flute and closed the pages of the bark concerti that had occupied his attention. Each man knew what the clatter of those hooves and the rattle of those particular carriage wheels announced. Balfour rose, took up his brace of knives, and prepared three glasses of brandy, while Merriweather exchanged musical accoutrements for his paired service revolvers and signature black greatcoat. By the time Mrs. Long came to announce Lord Carmichael, Her Majesty's special agents were prepared to receive him. "'That coat's a terrible affectation,' Lord Carmichael said in lieu of civil greeting. "'I'm told the ladies find it charming,' Merriweather replied. Balfour grunted, bear-like, and thrust the brandy into Lord Carmichael's hand. His lordship frowned, sighed, and drank the liquor off. Merriweather's pale eyebrows rose a degree— This was not to be the gentleman's chat which usually began their services to the Crown. Both agents put their glasses down unsampled as his lordship nodded to the door. Moments later they were in the black carriage, the driver urging his horses to a greater speed than either Balfour or Merriweather considered safe in the present darkness. A cut crystal lamp gave the only light, its flame dancing and shuddering with the violence of their passage. Balfour noted a paleness in Lord Carmichael's face and the downturned cast of his eyes. "'I fear we have stepped into a trap, boys,' he said. "'The past has risen up against us.' "'Poetic,' Balfour said. "'It was not meant as a compliment. Eight decades ago, more or less, "'Napoleon laid siege to the Empire,' Lord Carmichael went on. "'You recall your history lessons, I presume.' "'You mean his Egyptian campaign,' Merriweather said. "'The attempt to interfere with the British trade routes "'that began with Lord Nelson cutting his supply lines at Abu Kir Bay?' and ended, as I recall, with little Boney sneaking away in the dead of night and leaving his men to the questionable mercies of the Mamelukes. The driver gave a loud shout and the carriage lurched. Outraged voices rose briefly above the clatter of hooves and wheels. Bonaparte's forces were the first to plumb the depths of the ruins of Egypt, Lord Carmichael said, and when the time came that the French had to put themselves upon our good graces, we were able to acquire a great wealth of these artefacts for the British Museum. It has been the labour of decades to catalogue and assess them, 
academic careers have gone from nurse's teat to graveyard dust without ever walking out of the collection. For the most part, the information gleaned from the pieces was dry as the dusts of Egypt. But there were oddities. Meaning, Balfour grunted, pieces that merited special study, works that failed to fit into place gracefully among their fellows, Lord Carmichael said. Fakes, Merriweather said, placed among the true artefacts by Napoleon's minions out of spite. I've read Lord Smithston's papers on the subject. As I understand, some of them rather amateur attempts. Why? Balfour asked. To confuse and embarrass British attempts to make sense of the fallen civilizations of Egypt, Merriweather said. Only the French would know which artefacts were genuine and which false. And for generations any theory or proposal with the temerity to include a British name could be discredited by the mere suggestion that someone on the continent might know better. It sounds petty, I know, Lord Carmichael said. But these are the French we're speaking of. Balfour coughed eloquently. It appears that Boney may have had something more direct in mind, Lord Carmichael said. The most impressive of the oddities is a sealed sarcophagus. Clearly it is not of the lineage of the other works. The markings upon it are different, the materials used to fashion it obviously modern, and thus, while it was ignored by the more traditional academics, it was the holy grail of the cranks and dabblers. Was, Balfour said. Permission was given to break the seal and open the thing, Lord Carmichael said. Her Majesty signed the order herself. As a favour, I presume, Merriweather said. A favourite cousin, perhaps, has thrown in his lot with the dabblers and cranks. Lord Abington, Lord Carmichael said. The anti-Semite, Balfour asked. The very one, Lord Carmichael said. Apparently in his scattershot inquiries into the alleged dark conspiracies of the Jewish race, he found reference to something which he conflated with Napoleon's imitation sarcophagus. He put upon his wife to intercede with Her Majesty, and was thus to supervise the experiment an hour ago. "'All has not gone well, I take it,' Merriweather said. "'We can't say,' Lord Carmichael said. Abington closed the workrooms and locked the doors from within. There were sounds, apparently. Something that might have been a shriek, and then the lights went out. No one's been able to raise him since. "'And you would like us to make our way into the place and discover what sort of Greek the Emperor left within his Trojan horse?' Merriweather said. "'Just so,' Lord Carmichael said. Balfour leaned forward, the action of the carriage barely sufficient to shift his solid weight. His dark eyes looked to Merriweather's pale ones. "'Plague,' Balfour said. "'Perhaps,' Merriweather said. "'There are several diseases endemic to the Nile Valley which might have survived the decades. Two of them might have overcome a man before he could call for help. Abington may have done us all a great favour when he barred those doors. At worst,' We may have to raise the museum. You can't mean that, Lord Carmichael gasped. My dear man, Merriweather said, I am often glib, but I am always serious. The carriage skidded to a halt at the steps of the British Museum. In the paired darkness of night and fog, the great columns rose up like the Nephilim of Genesis, giants of a forgotten era. Balfour and Merriweather took the wide marble steps two at a time, Lord Carmichael following as best he could. A young man waited at the top of the stair, anxiety twisting his face into a comic parody of grief. "'You are?' Balfour asked. "'Assistant Curator Olds,' the man said. "'I was working with Lord Abington on behalf of the museum. I was supposed to have been present at the unsealing, but Lord Abington ordered me out at the last moment.' "'Lead on, young Mr. Olds,' Merriweather said. "'There may not be a moment to lose.' 
The halls of the museum rose above the men in a gloom darker than the autumn sky. The scent of dust and still air gave the great triumph of English culture the unfortunate aspect of a necropolis. Their footsteps echoed against the marble and stone, dampening even Merriweather's gay affect. Mr. Olds led them down a long corridor, up one long flight of stairs, and then another to a hall designed around a pair of great oaken doors. Two other men, clearly minor functionaries of the establishment, huddled in the harsh light of a gas sconce. The hissing of the flame was the only sound. Balfour stepped immediately to the closed doors, scrutinising them with an expression so fierce as to forbid speech. Merriweather paced back and forth some length down the hall, his pale eyes moving restlessly across every detail, his footsteps silent as a cat's. "'Something's happened,' Balfour said, stepping back from the doors with a nod. Merriweather strode to Balfour's side, licked his fingertips and held them before the doorway. "'Yes, I see,' he said. "'What are you talking about?' Lord Carmichael asked. "'What do you mean, something's happened?' "'The room within is not sealed,' Merriweather said, his voice unnaturally calm. "'All through the museum the air has been still as the grave, "'but here there's the faintest of breezes. "'What other access ways are there to this workroom?' "'None, sir,' one of the functionaries said. "'There was a back way, but it was bricked up years ago "'to make more storage room for the collection.' "'Light?' Balfour asked. "'Gas lamps, sir,' the functionary said. "'Same as the rest.' "'And during the day,' Balfour said, "'are there windows?' "'Well, yes, sir, but they're set at the rooftop. "'The workrooms are high as a cathedral, some of them, sir.' "'We'll want rope,' Merriweather said, "'and ladders that will reach the roof. "'There's little time.' "'What do you suspect?' Lord Carmichael asked "'as the functionaries scattered to Merriweather's command. "'Merriweather shook his head silently and gave no other reply. "'A few minutes' work brought the discovery "'that the window high above the workroom had indeed been breached.' and less than a half-hour more allowed the pair of special agents to be lowered into the Stygian darkness within. Merriweather and Balfour descended slowly, the rough rope harnesses around them shifting as the functionaries strained against their weight. Merriweather had both revolvers drawn, and Balfour gripped his sharpest knife in his right hand. In the large man's left, a lantern glowed, slowly revealing the disarray beneath them. Napoleon's sarcophagus stood at the centre of the room, easily half again as long as a sleeping man. The ornate bronzework of its spilled lid seemed to glow in the dim light. The long wooden workbench at the object's side lay overturned, papers and dust-grayed hand-tools strewn about it. A strange scent like an overheated skillet filled the air. With a gesture, Balfour indicated a dark, rounded shape in a shadowed corner. Merriweather trained one of his pistols upon it, the other still at the ready should some as yet unrecognised threat appear. The pair reached the stone floor with near simultaneity. Shrugging off his rope harness, Balfour went immediately to the slumped figure in the corner while Merriweather examined the unsealed sarcophagus. Balfour needed little time to determine that Lord Abington was stone dead, the thick bruises around the man's neck telling of strangulation by an assailant of tremendous strength. The only odd features were the small red pinch marks that punctuated the bruises, as if the killer had pressed a length of barbed wire into the dying man's flesh. The sarcophagus was beautiful and unnerving. It appeared to be of cast metal, but while the outer layer was clearly bronze, the careful inlaying defied Merriweather's experienced eye. Perhaps silver, perhaps steel. The symbols that traced their way along the object's exterior began with a simple divided circle that became more and more baroque and complex with every iteration. 
Merriweather holstered one of his pistols, freeing him to run fingertips across the cool, slightly raised design. It reminded him of nothing so much as the schematic for a particularly powerful mainspring. The two men glanced at one another for a moment. Balfour nodded to the far wall, where a dusting of marble and stone littered the floor. In the dim illumination of the lantern, the handholds gouged from the great workroom's wall stood out as deep shadows against the grey. Something had dug through that stone as easily as a man might press strong fingers into clay. Not plague, Balfour said. No, old friend, before this is finished we may wish it had been. Quickly they unbarred the doors and stepped out to the hall where the assistant curator and Lord Carmichael awaited them. Merriweather summarised their findings. Indeed, something had been alive and waiting in the sarcophagus. It had slaughtered its liberator and climbed to the high window to make its escape. Whatever the beast was, it roamed free upon the streets of the city, and there was no time to waste. Assistant Curator Olds rushed into the workroom, stifling a shriek at the sight of Lord Abington's corpse. Lord Carmichael matched the long strides of Balfour and Merriweather as they made their way out to the street. The fog had thickened, softening what light it did not swallow. The damp pressed at the men's faces and clothes, soaking their coats as if they stood in a light rain. It was some minutes before Balfour coughed out in triumph, calling Merriweather and Lord Carmichael to his side. Merriweather knelt, oblivious of the alleyway's stench of filth and grime. The pale gaze shifted over the nearly obscured ground, picking out signs and markers almost too subtle for mortal eyes. Someone was waiting here, Merriweather said. The wide tracks are, I think, from the beast. But here and here, smaller feet. They spoke to one another, I think. And then... Merriweather went silent, moving down the alleyway, bent almost double. Balfour, at his side, held the lantern before them, dew forming on his wide moustache. Merriweather's hand darted out like a striking cobra, and he lifted a shard of glass toward the lantern. It had clearly fallen from the shattered window far above. A bright red smear of blood marked it. The beast? Balfour asked, sceptically. Perhaps, Merriweather said, but more likely this new person of the smaller shoes. I suspect there is another hunter already on the trail of our prey. I shall alert Scotland Yard, Lord Carmichael said. We'll need manpower to hunt it down. Come with me, the both of you. You can tell them what to look for and lead the pack. I'm afraid not, my lord, Merriweather said, his eyes fixed upon the darkness. There is little time now, and if we are to have any hope of stopping this, Balfour and I must hunt this dark hour alone. Balfour nodded gravely and snuffed out the lantern. In the sudden gloom, Lord Carmichael heard the quiet sound of blades being drawn. The click of Merriweather's revolvers answered as if the two men spoke to one another through their weaponry. "'Don't be daft,' Lord Carmichael said to the darkness about him. "'Wait an hour, and I'll have you a small army at your back.' As it stands, even if you find a thing, it's as likely to kill you as you it. It's a risk, Balfour growled, and an instant later Lord Carmichael found himself alone. Chapter 2 A Conspiracy of Jews The trail they followed was faint. Strange scratches on the cobbled streets, smears of blood that appeared with increasing frequency, and the uncanny scent of heat and dust that had haunted the workroom. Balfour and Merriweather made their way through the darkened streets, communicating with the slightest of sounds, the occasional light touch, and where the fog-shrouded streets' lights permitted, gestures. Years of training and shared experience gave them an instinctive telepathy that might have appeared unnatural had there been mortal eyes to follow them. The thing from the sarcophagus moved quickly. Its stride was wide enough that, 
were it the shape of a man, it would stand easily seven feet high. In some places the things passing had scraped the tops of the cobblestones white. The other tracks, smaller shoes with leather soles and blood, were made by someone moving more slowly. At a shrouded intersection, Balfour leaned close to the ground. His eyes were little more than glimmers in the fog. He made an unsatisfied grunt. Yes, Merriweather said. I see it too. The beast knows it is being tracked. It's letting this poor man follow it, leaving marks to guide him on. Why? I cannot say, but I suspect it knows its pursuer. Perhaps it is hoping to tire our fellow hunter before turning upon him, in which case, God help the man. Balfour grunted his agreement, and the pursuit began afresh. It was only minutes later that Merriweather lifted his head, fists tightening upon his revolvers. The barest sound reached through the blanketing fog, metal against metal like a sword fight or a machinist's press. Balfour paused a moment, then heard it as well. The key by the river, Merriweather breathed, and the pair was off, speeding through the darkness, heedless of the risk to themselves. The scene that greeted them was the tissue of nightmare. A human figure in a long, damp-slicked overcoat stood near the edge of the flowing Thames, silhouetted by the great metal torch held before it, and in the glow of the fire, trapped between water and flame, the beast itself stood, a living statue. The gears and clockwork of its arm and chest lay exposed, the constant interior movement lending it the aspect of a thing made of a thousand minute, blind, idiot processes. Its face, framed by the silver and gold headdress common to the enigmatic images of Egypt, was inhuman, metallic, and twisted into an expression of rage and hatred and, oddly, sorrow. Articulated fingers glimmered like claws, and Balfour recalled viscerally the red pinch marks on Lord Abington's flesh where the dead man's skin had been caught in those hinges. With a cry of despair, the hunter swung his torch as if trying to drive the thing of metal back into the water. The beast was too fast, its arms thrusting forward more quickly than the eye could follow. Even as Merriweather let out a howl, the mysterious hunter fell to his knees, the great torch dropping to the ground at his side. The beast looked up, something like eyes but not, taking in the appearance of these new attackers. A knife hissed through the thick air, striking the thing's face with a sound of breaking crystal. The automaton's bestial mouth gaped open, and an inhuman cry of rage drowned out the reports of Merriweather's pistols. Sparks flew from the thing where the bullets struck home. The wide metal legs bent and the clockwork beast launched itself into the darkness, just as the pair arrived at the quay. The hunter lay in a spreading pool of blood, torch guttering on the stone. "'After it,' Balfour said. "'Wait!' Merriweather called, kneeling to the fallen figure. He turned to the wounded hunter. A wide fan of dark hair surrounded the unconscious face of a woman of olive complexion and striking beauty. Balfour looked from the injured woman to the darkness and back, a hunting dog torn between its fallen companion and the chase, then sighed and spat into the Thames before coming to Merriweather's side to aid in binding her wounds. Back at the apartments on King Street, the mysterious woman lay on the divan. Mrs. Long brought thick wool blankets kept for just such occasions, the stains of previous visitors' blood hardly visible thanks to her careful laundering. The smell of strong tea competed with the sharp scent of Dr. Lister's new antiseptic fluid. With as much regard to propriety as possible, Merriweather and Balfour had cut away the woman's garments in order to treat her wounds. The chore had been more arduous than they had expected. Heavy leather and steel links armoured the woman's body, and yet the blows the great clockwork had delivered against her had done terrible damage. 
This alone would have stopped most men, Merriweather said, as he indicated a long gash on the woman's arm. And yet I would swear it was the injury first delivered. Balfour nodded silently and dabbed the deeper wound in her side with the gauze soaked in a numbing solution of liquefied cocaine. The woman murmured, her brow furrowed, and she shifted away from his touch. The two men paused, waiting to see whether she would regain consciousness, and when she did not, returned to the careful business of stitching her skin back together. Impressive, Balfour said grudgingly. Without warning, the room spun around Merriweather. Ceiling, window, door, and wide-eyed Balfour swam past in the space of a heartbeat. A sharp pain bloomed in his neck and a dull one in the joint of his left shoulder. He found himself on his knees, arm locked behind him, and his physician's scalpel cutting into the flesh over his jugular. Balfour chuckled. Very impressive, he said. I do not believe I have had the pleasure of making your acquaintance, the woman, Merriweather's captor, said. Her voice buzzed with anger and fear. Balfour, Balfour said, then waved a thick hand at his mortally threatened compatriot, Merriweather. We came upon you as the clockwork beast struck you down, madam, Merriweather said. We have since bent ourselves to the preservation of your life. I assure you we had no designs upon your virtue. The clockwork, the... Oh, God, it has escaped! Merriweather felt the grip on his arm relax, the blade withdraw from his neck. When he stepped away from his guest, he encountered no further violence. Balfour handed him the cocaine-soaked gauze to apply to the trickle of blood on his neck. Strength had left the woman as suddenly as it had come, and she sank back to the divan, head in hands. In her distress, she was oblivious to her own wounds and the damaged condition of her garments. Balfour wrapped a blanket over her shoulders. "'You know of the thing,' Merriweather said. "'I do,' the woman said, her voice thick with despair. "'You are, I must assume, associated with the Koanim. The woman looked up, surprise in her eyes. "'You know?' she whispered. "'I surmised,' Merriweather said, taking a chair. "'Lord Abington was well known as an enemy of the Jewish race. "'Whatever ill-conceived notion began this "'saw its birth in his fevered brain.' I had not believed in the connection until I knew that a second party was also hunting the thing from the sarcophagus. Had you been an ally of Lord Abington, there would have been no need to hide in the shadows outside the museum. Thus it followed you were an enemy. The affair is thick with the reek of secrecy, and I assume that the priestly class of your race would be the most likely to involve themselves. In truth, I know little more than that. My father was Rabbi Isaac Cohen, the woman said. I am Rachel, and the thing that I have failed to end tonight was the greatest evil the world has ever faced. Balfour rang the bell for Mrs. Long as Merriweather leaned back in his chair. I suspect our assumptions on the matter may have been in error, Merriweather said. I was hoping you might enlighten us. Rachel looked down, some inner debate raging in her mind. When, a moment later, her gaze rose to meet theirs, the uncertainty was gone. She was, it was clear, a woman well suited to committed action. These are secrets that were never to be known outside the deepest circles of my people, she said. As a woman, even I should have been barred from them. But it was my father's judgment that I should know, and so he chose to break the silence. And I make that same judgment now. You should know, gentlemen, that there is at work a conspiracy within the Jewish people which reaches back through all the ages of mankind. We have suffered deeply for its preservation, and we shall, I am certain, suffer again in the future. To be the chosen of God is not a blessing, but a grim responsibility. And despite the wild conclusions of Lord Abington's ilk, 
I assure you this conspiracy is not aimed at the control of the world, but its continuation. There is an occult history, hidden within the passages of the scripture which you call the Pentateuch. Thirty-six men in each generation are chosen to carry the truth behind the symbols, and my father was one of these. Because of that, I can tell you this. Many thousands of years ago, not long after the expulsion from Eden, there was an age of universal slavery that has been wiped from the histories. I cannot say where the masters came from. Some rabbis say they were angels fallen after a war in heaven, others that they were God's rough designs for mankind given life as our punishment for a disobedience. All the remaining records agree that a great comet appeared in the sky, and within a year all humanity was bent under the yoke of mechanism. You have seen it with your own eyes, and so you may believe me. A race existed built of metal, gears, and glass. They knew no weariness and no love. Deep within them was a hatred of all things cool and growing, of life that springs from a woman's womb instead of a machinist's forge. In Egypt their greatest power grew, and from Egypt the great forests of Saharan Africa fell to dust and desert. Generations of mankind raised up monuments that touched the sky itself at the cost of blood and suffering and death. Under the cruel metal whip of the masters, we achieved greatness and saw the nature itself begin to die at our hands. The Jewish people led the revolt which broke the power of the machine intelligences. The twelve plagues, the parting of the Red Sea and the flight from Egypt are echoes of a much deeper and more painful story. A story that I have read. Suffice it to say, gentlemen, that humanity's freedom was purchased at a terrible price. And preserving that freedom, seeing that mankind is never again bent double beneath inhuman feet, has ever since been the secret charge of my people. Why secret? Balfour asked as Mrs. Long appeared, with fresh tea and cakes on a tray. Not all traces of the masters were destroyed, Rachel said, and not all men glory in the burdens of freedom. Almost as soon as the masters fell, others began to imitate the tyrants under whom their parents had suffered. Had small-minded, petty, evil men gotten hold of the tools of masters, they would soon recreate the dreadful mechanisms themselves, thinking that common cause could be made with them and learning their error too late, and to the debasement of all creation. Small-minded men like Lord Abington, Merriweather said, pouring the tea into cups. His neck had almost stopped bleeding. Your mission was not merely against the contents of that tomb, but also the man who sought to free it. Rachel smiled and shrugged. I would have been as happy to persuade him through reason, had he been willing to listen, she said. It was imperative that no artefact complex enough to fashion its own will be set loose upon the world. The cost of one man's life would have been small enough. But I was too late, and now an enemy of life is set free. I fear we are doomed. Early days yet, Balfour said. Merriweather could hear in his tone how fond he had become of Rachel, even on this short and unlikely acquaintance. And that, Merriweather said, raising his cup to the clatter of hooves and carriage wheels, may be the very man to give us the tools of our salvation. Balfour rose to his feet and poured out a brandy. Moments later, Lord Carmichael burst into the room. His eyes were wild, his cravat slightly disarrayed. "'My God! Merriweather! Balfour! Where have you been? Half of Scotland Yard is rasted out of their beds and combing the city. A new pair are—' He caught sight of the beautiful woman clad in shredded armour, blood, and Mrs. Long's often-stained visitor's blanket. Balfour pressed the glass of liquor into his hand. "'You misled us, old man,' Merriweather said. 
All this blather about Napoleon reaching back from the grave, entirely untrue. Though, to give you partial marks, your worst mistake was choosing the wrong emperor. Wrong emperor, Lord Carmichael echoed, then collected himself visibly. What do you mean, wrong emperor? Not bony, Balfour said. Pharaoh. Chapter 3. The Fall of Empires. The first and best solution would have been containment, Merriweather said, pacing slowly past the great window which night had turned to a dark mirror. The other sat sipping tea and brandy with the superficial appearance of ease, though only Balfour's dark eyes seemed truly calm. That option is lost to us. Instead, we must locate this unwelcome visitor. Our options are twofold. We may adopt the standard practice of raising a great force of sleepy policemen and setting them out scattershot from Pall Mall to Whitechapel. Merriweather nodded to Lord Carmichael. His lordship replied with a slight bow that was a marvel of physical sarcasm. Or we can attempt to divine our enemy's intention and anticipate its actions, Merriweather continued. As Scotland Yard is pursuing the first of these, I suggest we turn ourselves to the second and put ourselves in its place. This is your best investigative tool. Imagine myself to be a millennia-old clockwork, Lord Carmichael asked. Saddened, Rachel said. I believe I should feel quite a terrible grief. Merriweather and Balfour exchanged a glance and Merriweather nodded. Go on, Balfour said. When last it looked upon the earth, Rachel said, it stood in the great deserts of Egypt. Dryness and heat and lifelessness were all around it, and marked its great victory. To rise up in the chill and damp of London, a place swarming not only with humanity, but dogs and horses and cats. Rats! Her face had taken on an almost pitying aspect. All that it knew and celebrated must seem dead from the world and London its sepulchre. Fitz, Balfour said. Yes, when first we saw it, it had an air of grief and mourning about it, along with a deep and terrible rage. Very well, that's progress. We can say that it isn't likely to seek out common cause with humanity. Its first act was the slaughter of a prospective ally. Perhaps in its isolation it may despair and collapse of its own accord. It will attack, Rachel said, without mercy or pity, but with intelligence and it need not be alone. It is quite capable of assembling another of its kind, or of any of a thousand other designs. Merriweather rocked back a moment, his eyes closing, the blood draining from his face. Of course, he said. I had thought it could have no allies because it had refused Lord Abington's outreached hand, but its allies need not be human, need not even be living. Balfour reached for his brace of knives. Merriweather leapt across the room, scooping up his black greatcoat. Rachel rose as well, only a slight narrowing of her eyes indicating the pain of her wounds. "'What, you think it's going to Big Ben like a duckling following its mother?' Lord Carmichael said. "'I suspect it is seeking out machine works, my lord,' Merriweather said, his voice absent of its usual friendly mockery. "'Indeed, it almost certainly has already done so.' Reach who you can of the Scotland Yard forces, instruct them to narrow the search, focus their attention on factories and rail yards, especially those with forges. Where are you going? Lord Carmichael asked. His voice was sober. Underground, Balfour said. It knows the habits of its former slaves, Merriweather said, checking his service revolvers. It must therefore know that humanity rises with the sun. Whatever it intends, surely it will have set dawn as the mark for its accomplishment. Its best hope of working unnoticed is the Underground Railway. In all of London, only there will it have coal, iron and solitude. 
I fear it will need little more. God go with you, Lord Carmichael said. Not God alone, Rachel Cohen said, casting off the blanket. No, madam, Merriweather said. No one can respect your determination and ability more than I, but you are grievously injured. You have done what was needed. Balfour and I shall end this thing for you, and for your father as well. Rachel Cohen spoke then several sharp words in the Hebrew tongue. Merriweather answered in that same language, and the woman sat down slowly. Balfour cleared his throat and nodded meaningfully toward the door. Merriweather bowed to the woman seated proudly upon his divan, then to Lord Carmichael. Once the door had closed behind the pair, Lord Carmichael turned to her. "'Don't concern yourself,' he said. "'We'll be seeing those two again shortly.' "'I fear you may be mistaken,' she said, and the calm and sorrow of her voice chilled his blood. The Farringdon station had been closed since before midnight. In this dead hour no watchman answered their calls, and Balfour was forced to snap the great lock. The pair descended into a darkness as deep as the grave. A glass lantern hung by the side of the platform, and when lit gave a dim orange light. Balfour took it, the cheap metal clinking and groaning as they lowered themselves to the tracks. Merriweather drew his service pistols. The fog had penetrated even here, giving the narrow tunnel before them the illusion of great distance, though the light could not have reached more than twenty feet before them. "'There,' Balfour said. "'Yes,' Merriweather said. "'I smell it, too.' In the thick air, rich with the stink of urine, rotting food, a new scent penetrated. Overheated iron, much like they had experienced in the workroom. They lapsed into silence. For ten long minutes, then fifteen, they walked through the dark and twisting tunnel, not even rats to disturb them. Then a sound reached them, deep and distant, like a roll of thunder that went on without end. The funk of hot metal was overwhelming, and a warmth had come to the air that neither man found comforting. The tunnel turned, and as they made their way around the bend, Merriweather lifted the barrel of one pistol. Balfour took his meaning and shuttered the lantern. There, far ahead, a faint red light shifted and skittered along the ground, as if trapped between the rails. After it, Merriweather said, and they were off. Bolting through the darkness, wood and iron making invisible obstacles around their feet, they quickly overtook the eerie light. By the unshuttered lantern, the mechanism looked like nothing so much as a great beetle, Six articulated copper arms propelled it along the earth at the speed of a brisk walk. Great pincers of steel extended before it, and a single lump of live coal burned within its back. Balfour and Merriweather watched as it tapped against one rail, then another, and then, with a show of eerie strength, fit its pincers around a wooden tie and reduce it to toothpicks. Balfour drew his blade, and with the grace of a master chef flicked the burning coal from its resting place. The scarab reacted with alarm, clicking its mandibles and charging madly about, then slowing and at last coming to a clicking halt. Merriweather lifted the object. Already the metal was cooling. One copper leg twitched and went still. Balfour raised the lantern, looked ahead down the tunnel and sighed. Merriweather followed his gaze. There, perhaps a hundred feet before them, the earth appeared to have given way. The iron rails lay bent and chewed, leading down awkwardly into a great pit. With a growing sense of vertigo, the two men advanced. What had been a breeze grew stronger, hotter and more difficult to breathe. The roar, which had been only a growing thunder, became pandemonium. Below them, hollowed from the earth in the course of half a single night, a black cathedral had grown. Automata with wings of filigree spun in flocks, burning coals in their bellies like fireflies. 
two great machines that had once been locomotive engines, lurched and lumbered like black nightmares of Egypt, brutal faces chattering at one another in satanic chorus. A thousand or more of the insectile scarab machines were at work, their jaws shaping metal and stone with the mindless fervour of termites constructing a hill. With a speed no human machinist could dream of, they arranged planks, strung wires and formed gears. Merriweather saw one lift a dripping shard of half-melted glass from its back, and the object of their effort. No greater titan had ever walked the earth than the form now half-created in the London soil below them. Its blank eyes stood a yard across, its teeth were great and shining blades, the body being formed from the clay of scrap metal of England by ungodly hands spoke of strength and complexity unmatched in human history or indeed the human mind. It was a destroyer of cities, of nations, of the human race, and the automata raced toward its completion. Balfour leaned close, shouting to be heard over the infernal symphony. Flood the tunnels, then? Seems wise, Merriweather shouted back. They turned back quietly, hoping not to attract the notice of the mechanisms below. Before they had gone a dozen steps, a great shadow leapt for them. Balfour dropped the lantern, parrying the beast's snake-fast strike with an instinct born of a lifetime's training, and still three long scratches bled freely across his cheek. Merriweather's pistols filled the narrow tunnel with their reports. Sparks flew, but the great beast stalked forward. The night had not been kind to it. The plates that had lent it a more nearly human appearance were gone. Cannibalised, Merriweather assumed, to make the first of its offspring— Likewise, the bronze gears and springs of its mechanism were stripped down, its own flesh sacrificed for parts. Its intelligence had played its purpose, its intent was now embodied in the working swarms below. What remained of the original machine did so for the single purpose of preventing human interference before the final terrible hour. The thing swung its great hands without warning. Merriweather leapt back, feeling the tug at his greatcoat and hearing the armoured cloth rip like thin tissue. With a steady hand he aimed at the one crystal eye unmarred by Balfour's blade, and with a shot shattered it. The beast shrieked, its hands rising to its face in a parody of animal pain as Balfour and Merriweather ran past it. Blinded, Balfour said in congratulatory tone. I shouldn't put too great a faith in that, old man, Merriweather said, looking back over his shoulder. Silhouetted by the hellish light, the beast was not nursing its wound but replacing its crystals. The great metallic head rose and a beam of steady light now leapt from it, lighting the fleeing men as clearly as daylight. It sprang after them, its gear and piston legs, working faster than a quarter horse's. Merriweather stopped looking back and set himself to the running. The damp returned, the fog appearing in tendrils as they sped through the tunnel by the shifting light of their pursuer. Balfour and Merriweather had almost regained the station when it overtook them. With a grunt, Balfour fell his legs swept from beneath him. Merriweather skidded to a halt, raising both revolvers, only to have them battered away. The great thing rose to its full height, its foot on Balfour's chest, its gaze locked on Merriweather. It roared in something like triumph. Balfour drew a blade and sawed desperately at the thing's ankle, but to no effect. For a moment Merriweather saw the end of all things before him. The blunderbuss rocked the beast back. A small gear hissed past Merriweather's ear, and Balfour leapt to his feet. Rachel Cohen and Lord Carmichael stepped closer, the Jewess discarding the spent firearm in the clear knowledge there would be no opportunity to reload. "'Remarkable woman,' Balfour said. "'Yes,' Lord Carmichael agreed. 
It took her some time to convince me that you two might be in need of aid, but she managed, and just in time, I'd say. Perhaps, Merriweather said, the battle is not yet won. The beast had paused, its head shifting from one side to the other like a bird considering its prey. The new arrivals had given it a sense of caution, but it had not abandoned its purpose. Instead, it seemed to taste the air and prepare itself to slaughter four rather than two. Merriweather put a hand to Balfour's shoulder, paused and pulled it back. Balfour's tumble had left his coat sticky with grime and grit. "'You'll need a cleaner for that, old man,' Merriweather said, displaying his blackened hand. Balfour frowned at the mess, tilted his wide head, and then, understanding his old companion's intention, grinned. The beast attacked again, but instead of blades and bullets, Balfour and Merriweather leapt to meeting like boys in a schoolyard. They slung double handfuls of railway muck into the gorgeous machinery. With every third step, Merriweather stooped to scrape his hand along the ground and drew up more of the black mixture of earth and old food, rat droppings, pebbles and bits of newspaper that a living city produces as body does sweat. Quickly the fine bronze gears began to suffer. The great knife-like fingers began to bend more awkwardly. The deadly swings came more slowly. With a shout of delight, Rachel Cohen joined in as well, and then, with a sigh, Lord Carmichael as well. When it became clear that the thing could no longer turn to the left, all four howled in sheer animal delight. No four civilised throats had ever shared a hunting call of such simple human pleasure. At last the beast froze, its gears fixed in place, its wires taut but immobile. It teetered and fell to the ground, its replacement eye shattering and the light within it fading forever out. "'You're injured,' Lord Carmichael said. "'A scratch,' Balfour said. "'There isn't time,' Merriweather said. "'Lord Carmichael, the city's water supply must be rerouted to fill the underground. "'If we do not, all of London will be in flames by morning.' "'Is it possible?' Rachel asked. "'Can so great a task be accomplished in so little time?' Her arms were mud-encrusted to the elbow, her hair had come loose, and the wound on her shoulder had reopened, sluicing her side with fresh blood. No garment model had ever been lovelier. "'My dear Miss Cohen,' Lord Carmichael said, "'this sort of thing is what I do.' And indeed, the following morning was an unpleasant one for the residents of the great city. The drinking water usually supplied by the mighty Thames was in short supply— More than 40,000 workers were kept from their normal schedules due to a massive failure of the underground rail system. And just as the first light of dawn appeared in the east, Scotland Yard closed several streets to traffic due to huge geysers of superheated steam coming up from the underground's ventilation shafts. There was a great deal of complaint, a bit of bitter humour at the expense of the government bureaucracy, and the city went on for the most part as usual. London did not burn, no one lost their lives or freedom. Human civilization failed to collapse. In King Street, Mrs. Long set out a simple breakfast of eggs made fragrant with rosemary and buttered bread, still hot from the baker's oven. Balfour, a sticking plaster on his cheek, ate with slow deliberation as if the eggs had offered him some insult which he was avenging with his molars. Merriweather read the morning paper distractedly, the cheap paper rustling whenever he moved and glancing up often to watch the sunlight burning off the fog. And Rachel Cohen, wrapped in one of Mrs. Long's good housecoats, now that the bleeding of her injuries was under control, sipped tea and gave herself over to small sighs. "'It was good fortune that you found us when you did,' Merriweather said to her. "'It could easily have been a much less pleasant night.' "'I must disagree, sir,' she said. "'In my experience there have been very few nights less pleasant than that.' 
though in the light of morning I can recognise some virtues that have come from it. Balfour cleared his throat, and to Merriweather's delight and surprise, blushed furiously. Mrs. Long appeared at the door, a fourth plate in her hand. She placed it deliberately at the table, drew silverware from her apron to make the setting, and with a satisfied smile announced Lord Carmichael. His lordship looked both exhausted and pleased with himself. Soot and stone dust marred his usually impeccable clothing, and the thick smell of algae followed him like bad fish. Even Merriweather didn't complain. Lord Carmichael swung a burlap sack onto the centre of the table. A gift from the British Museum, Lord Carmichael said. Fatigue slurred his words slightly. Apparently Mr. Olds has no use for the thing. Balfour raised a bushy brow, and Merriweather leaned over to tug the bag open. The great bronze head lay bare before them, the gears and axles forever stilled. Rachel brushed the brow of her conquered enemy, compassion in her face. I can't imagine what it must have been, she said, to have come so very far and come so very near the redemption of its race, and yet to have failed. Had its success not meant my own destruction, I should feel moved by it, I think. Indeed, Merriweather said. I imagine it must have been in anguish in those last moments, to the degree it felt anything at all. Balfour's chewing slowed, and he nodded toward the head. Then why is it smiling? he asked. Whatever the historians choose to believe, I know that the age that has begun to take the name of Industrial Revolution was born that night, or if not born, at least it found its wings. In the automobiles and flying machines, the factory and the forge, mechanism has returned to the world as slave instead of master. Rather than spreading desert, the fields and farms of England are producing more than ever before, and likewise on the continent. Rather than end the reign of humanity, machines are raising us beyond our dreams. And still, I am haunted in these my failing days, by the dread Emperor's smile. I had imagined when I was young that it must have lain inert within its tomb all lost thousands of years until Lord Abington's ill-fated enthusiasm revivified it. And yet, what if I am wrong? What dark, deep, subtle fancies might such a mind create in so very long a time? In dreams I hear again the chatter of the machine-gun. When I wake it is to the great columns of smoke rising from our factories. I wonder if there is not something we have overlooked. And welcome back. As I've mentioned before, I love it when spiritual lore gets mixed into fiction, and the idea that fallen angels created a post-Eden, pre-Egyptian age of mechanism (laughs) really gets my geek sense tingling. Hope you all enjoyed it too. So, we decided to start off this new year with our own kind of steampunk fortnight. This week we had Daniel Abraham's incredibly fun steampunk romp. Next week we've got a steampunk tale that takes us far, far away from London's cobblestone streets. We hope you enjoy it. Feedback this week is for Nick Mamatasa Scottianis, read by David O. Ingolstadt. The story of a young Greek-American finding his way between the cultures of the old and the new, and the scatological boogeyman who followed his family to the new world. Opinions on this one ranged across the board from very, very funny to not funny to amusing but forgettable. Boggled Coriander said, Podcastle comedies have been on a real winning streak for me lately, and I have yet to hear a Nick Mamata story I haven't liked. 
I really enjoyed this, and even though the nanotech was obviously going to be more than just window dressing, I was pleasantly surprised by how it figured into the ending. Saturday Sportsman claimed Shitty John was now one of his new favorite characters. <laughs> yeah, right, Saturday Sportsman. We'll see how you feel when he causes your sewage pipes to explode. Not everyone enjoyed it, though. The protagonist annoyed Electric Paladin, who said he had this smug acceptance of his parents' Grecomania that I found kind of off-putting. There were moments I loved, moments that made me squirm a little, in the bad way, and a lot of moments that I'll probably forget in a week. Anarchistador was not pleased when he found out the true definition of Malacca, and excused himself from the conversation by saying, I have some childhood acquaintances I need to hunt down and put to the sword. Well, we wish you the best of luck on your quest, Anarchistador. Just be wary of following ancient clockwork demons underground without a compliment of Scotland Yard's finest. Seriously, all of your comments mean a lot to us, and we'd love to hear more from you at forum.escapeartist.net. Let us know what you think. Hey, why not get the new year started off right and fulfill that resolution you made to send some money Podcastle's way? Just head on over to podcastle.org, make a donation to keep our authors paid and to keep us going, and also allowing you to become part of a conspiracy of awesome. Thanks. And if you want something for yourself, head over to poddisc.com where you can pick up a set of t-shirts or archive discs. Thank you all very, very much for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. That's all we've got for this time. We'll be back in a week with To Follow the Waves, a brand new story from Amal Motar. Until then, remember that to be the chosen ones of Podcastle is not a grim responsibility, but a blessing. And we'll see you all in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. H.G. Wells said, It is possible to believe that all the past is but the beginning of a beginning, and that all that is and has been is but the twilight of the dawn. It is possible to believe that all the human mind has ever accomplished is but the dream before the awakening.